Hi, my name is David Boeren and I work at Studium Generale. Why do we protest? That is the question Dr. Benjamin Abrams tried to answer when he visited us to talk about his book, The Rise of the Masses. Benjamin Abrams is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University College of London and an expert in the study of political processes in both democratic and authoritarian societies. His research primarily explores revolutions, resistance movements and mass mobilization. How do mass protests erupt and what can we learn from them? Have fun listening to this lecture. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it was actually fascinating to hear the, um, the prior announcement from the, the university occupiers, because um, Occupy is one of the movements that I talk about in this, in this book, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, it was also interesting to see on the leaflet that's been handed out all the different fonts and the way that it kind of reminiscent of different movements like Extinction Rebellion, Occupy and others. Um, that was actually one of the topics that I engaged with, this kind of symbolic aspect in the other book that I'm not going to talk about today, uh, the Symbolic Objects in Contentious Politics book. Um, but I should say, if any of you are interested in that book, uh, we've got some amazing authors. It's completely free online. Just type in symbolicobjects.com, you get a free PDF of the book. Um, so check it out if that's your, that's your kind of thing. But without any further ado, here's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, this phenomenon that I kind of call the rise of the masses, this phenomenon of spontaneous mobilization when tons of people just show up and protest kind of of their own accord, right? And we'll get into what that means in, in a minute. But first of all, I have the obligatory plug for the book, which is uh, simply that you will f you'll have the book in your bookshops, maybe, or on Amazon, or somewhere um, in June 2023. I promise you it is interesting, it's accessible, all that kind of stuff. And so to do my uh, due diligence to my, to my publisher, Please buy the book when it comes out in June. Uh, it, I, I think it's quite good. Um, I'm, I'm quite proud of it. So what makes something a mass uprising? Let's get into it. So conventionally, when we think about uprisings, um, they have this third component that most protests don't. When you think about a conventional protest, maybe some of the ones you've seen on, on campus, fundamentally, there is this organized core at the center. Most of the people who are actually doing the organizing, who are getting things done, who are sometimes taking the risks themselves. And sometimes when those protests get a little bit bigger, you have these supporting networks that step in. People who are maybe only occasionally involved, they might be on mailing lists, they might be on the Facebook page, they may be somehow connected to these core organizers, but they're not regular participants. They come in and they come out, depending on when they're contacted by those people who are in this core. And that speaks to the vast majority of protests you will ever see, these two components. And this is where uprisings come in. Uprisings have this third element, the masses. But, as I show in the book, the masses aren't brought in by networking or organization. They're brought in by this third aspect that I call affinities. And throughout the book, I develop an understanding of how and why these affinities are activated and why people eventually come to partake in protest. So, what's the, uh, what's the book about? 
Well, I cover four very different cases, and this was very deliberate. I wanted to kind of see if my ideas had worth, and I think the way to do that is to test them in circumstances that are difficult rather than easy. Um, there is a convention in academia often to say, OK, right, I've got this idea. I'm going to test it in three countries that are next to each other, and surprise, surprise, look, all these countries are very similar because they are similarly geographically, economically, etc., situated. I wanted to do the opposite. So I thought, how far can I push myself across time and space while also having the ab ability to actually go and talk to people and ask them why they did things. And so my first thought was, right, we had this fantastic wave of protest in 2011. Let's look at two opposite poles of that. Let's look at, on the one hand, the Egyptian revolution in 2011, and then let's look at this Occupy Wall Street movement that comes up around kind of half a year, a bit more later, um, and see if there are any similarities there. But once I did that, I said, OK, hold on a second. Maybe this is just something recent. Maybe mass uprisings look different in the past. And so I decided to look at the French Revolution back in 1789, which entailed a completely different form of research. I was going from doing all of these really interesting interviews with activists, suddenly having to go to archives and look up people's diary entries and find arrest reports and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but I didn't stop there. And the reason I didn't stop there was really partly by chance. Uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I was writing up the book. And all of a sudden, people all across America went out in the streets demanding uh, racial justice and an end to police brutality following the murder of George Floyd. And I thought, hey, you know, as it happens, I was doing another project on the United States anyway. I already had all this ethical clearance to do interviews. This is a perfect time to see how this looks in the middle of it, in the middle of action, do these ideas work out? And so I brought in this kind of Black Lives Uprising that we saw in 2020. And that's the architecture of the book. And what I'll do is I'm going to talk through each of the cases and gradually explain the theoretical ideas that I generated from them. The way I'm going to do this is I'm going to issue kind of a slightly potted account of the book. In reality, these ideas came together through the comparison of these cases and looking at patterns across them. But what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to kind of talk about each case and then explain how we can learn a lesson from it that helps us better understand mass protest. So the, um, the first case we're going to look at is the Egyptian Revolution. Now, just as a kind of quick show of hands, how many of you are remotely familiar with the Egyptian Revolution? How many of you have kind of heard of it as an important thing? That's quite a good showing, yeah. OK, I'm glad. Um, I'm still going to give you some of the background anyway, just for the facility of, of everyone in the room, particularly those who haven't heard. Um, but when I was doing my graduate studies, this was the big revolution that had, had gone on recently. Everyone was obsessed with it. And people were saying, hey, look, this Egyptian revolution really shows the power of Facebook and Twitter. And we can look to these social media platforms to explain why revolutions occur. The problem was then when we talked to the people who participated in the revolution, they said, well, you know, actually the internet was down for some really important periods during this revolution. And actually the people who were on Twitter were mostly using English to talk to journalists. And this, this vision of a, a social media revolution kind of broke down before our eyes once we started finding out what was happening. And so it left us with this big question. If it wasn't a digital revolution, if there was this element that was in the streets, and if Facebook and Twitter can't be called responsible for turning people out, then why did they come? Why did you know, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, show up in the street and face down police guns to topple a regime? And this was the question that I began way back in 2013. I began my doctoral studies trying to answer. Um, 
And so the solution was to go to Egypt, which at that time was kind of in this, the throes of kind of post-revolutionary instability. There had been a coup um, against the existing Muslim Brotherhood government, and there was this rising new regime headed by the um, former chair of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, a guy called Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who's now still the uh, president of Egypt. Um, and I went out there to try and figure out what had gone on and what the people who actually participated said about why they did it. And a few things kind of came out of this process. The first was there was this long historical background that many people had missed. When we looked at why people in the Arab world were protesting, there had been this narrative that suggested that Arabs had somehow been passive for the decade prior to the revolutions and suddenly awakened. In fact, one of the terms that was used alongside the Arab Spring at the time was this notion of an Arab awakening. Of course, the moment you start talking to people, they say, oh, no, you know, there have been protest movements for years before. And so there have been this long-running kind of cultural reservoir of protests upon which this new movement drew. But it's also true that this movement wasn't particularly sophisticated. It was relatively small. It didn't have much reach. People generally ended up getting rounded up by the police or arrested or pushed off the streets. And ultimately, it didn't really explain what happened either. And so I began to look into the events themselves starting with January 25th, 2011, which is what many people call the first of 18 days of revolution in Egypt. And during this period of the 18 days, you saw gradually building contention, ultimately leading to the overthrow of the regime. But day one, well, that wasn't quite as momentous as people would think. In Cairo, for example, you had around 25,000 people who, yes, mostly were energized by a bit of face-to-face -face activism, a bit of Facebook activism, and a lot of excitement about a revolution in neighboring Tunisia, who decided, you know what, yeah, it's a national holiday honoring the police, but I'm going to show up and say, in their own terms, fuck the police. They were going to say, you know what, we won't have this regime that uses its police forces to beat us down, to harass us, and to often torture us celebrate these very people. We're going to borrow some energy from nearby Tunisia and we are going to protest and we're going to demand that there be a revolution in the country's political structures. Now, of course, there's some complications here. The word revolution actually has two different variants in Arabic. The initial vision of revolution wasn't necessarily going to be one in which Mubarak himself would go. Um, it wasn't really anticipated that that would be achievable at the time, right? This was a country that had not seen very many major protests. But what happens on January 25th is the regime doubles down. The very police who are being protested against show up into the streets and dispatch the crowds, often with live ammunition, great brutality, and they create this spectre that kind of comes across the country as people go home to their families, they go and talk to their friends, people sometimes witness some media on it, although the media at this point is relatively tightly controlled. And they show Egyptians that the regime will not tolerate this insubordination. However, it turns out that the Egyptian people were not terribly happy about this. It turns out that when you shoot at your own civilians in the streets, when you brutally repress them when they try and protest, people sometimes think, hey, this just shows how bad this regime is. This just shows how bad things have gotten. And so far from detracting from revolutionary energy, this actually creates what um, I call in the book a paramount situation, the sense that there is a really important moment going on in Egyptian history, where actually if you don't stand up now, the regime will double down, it will crush you. Um, and so people felt more obliged to show up rather than less. And what happens in the days then between January 25th, the national holiday, and then the following Friday, which is on the 28th, 
is there is this flurry of organisation online that eventually gets nipped in the bud by an internet shutdown the day before the protest. But again, the uh, internet shutdown didn't work as expected. This is another example of this repression failing. Um, because what happens is people no longer have the option of going online and seeing what's happening and checking Twitter or Facebook or whatever. If they want to see whether there's a protest, if they want to partake in dissent, they have to go to the streets. And so when people show up at Friday prayers on the 28th of January 2011, they all follow into the streets. Massive crowds throughout the country, and especially in Cairo, converge upon Tahrir Square. People get so angry that they burn down the National Democratic Party headquarters, and the country is thrown into a period of deep uncertainty. For the remainder of the 18 days, there's kind of an ebb and flow of participation. Different moments trigger participation according to the sense of urgency. And so what you see after the 28th is initially there are some regime concessions, people begin to calm down, and then once again you have this pattern where there's a failed repression attempt. A bunch of people come in on camels, throwing Molotov cocktails and using machetes to attack this crowd who have peacefully assembled in the city's main square, Tahrir Square, where the protests have been focusing. Right at the moment at which protest was actually really beginning to decline. Um, and lo and behold, this draws way more people back because they say, you know, we have to defend this revolution and ordinary people pour forth from their homes and show up to protest. And from then on, they decide that they're going to turn the Tahrir Square protest into a full-blown Tahrir Square occupation. There'd already been some people sleeping overnight in the square previously after the protest on the 28th, but from February 1st onwards, there is a sustained period of occupation and Tahrir becomes this new space that people are able to come and demonstrate and feel free politically in ways that they wouldn't necessarily be in their own neighbourhood. Moreover, at this point, the Egyptian police, who uh, had mounted their very brutal assault on January 25th, had been pretty much fully cleared off the streets. There were some straggling regiments of, of the armed uh, Egyptian police around, but by and large, they had, had been forced off the streets. And so there was a sense now that the people well and truly had won which caused all of these ordinary people who usually would never protest to actually feel quite safe going out and going to Tahrir Square, protesting the regime, because there weren't any police to stop them. Loads of people were already there. It became this space that people had actually been able to defend against all of these prior onslaughts. And eventually, the military even stepped in to secure the zone around the square, making Egyptians feel as if there was some kind of legitimacy to the protest going on. And so what you saw kind of across the period of time that this case is playing out is you saw these various conditions that helped cultivate ordinary people's participation decisions. It made it much easier to protest, or it made it more opportune, or it made it more important. And this is the first element of the book, this idea of convergence. Convergence is a set of conditions that come to play in a given society that catalyze mobilization. Some of the ones I've talked about so far are things like situations, right? The social context through which mobilization occurs, what's happening to social structures. But these can also take the form of frames. It can be the way in which people conceive of reality, no matter how out of touch with reality that might be. Um, what you saw, for example, in, um, in Egypt was not only the case that there were various moments that were in fact opportune or were in fact really paramount moments that were kind of threatening, but also ones that simply seemed as if they were particularly paramount. And this happens towards the end of the revolution especially. You have this period in which people attend these massive national victory kind of ceremonies, essentially, where they're celebrating the fact they've occupied the square, they're getting what they want, the military are conceding to their demands, Mubarak is being increasingly mobilized. Mubarak, by the way, is the name of the Egyptian president at this point. Um, and so 
people join because they feel there's this historical moment going on in Egyptian history. Even though, of course, if you were looking at it structurally speaking, there wouldn't necessarily be an obligation to go and participate. It's not going to be the case that showing up at this particular juncture was important from the point of view of where the country was politically. But it was framed such that it was this tremendous national kind of celebration and historical moment that you wanted to be a part of. Um, the final element is spaces themselves. And this is something that we often ignore when we study uh, what we call, call contentious politics. That's the kind of broad section of things that include revolutions, social movement, political violence, things like that. Um, physical spaces themselves can have these characteristics. One of the things that happened in Egypt, for example, is Tahrir Square proved itself to be very readily defensible against regime onslaughts. And so it became this opportune space where actually, if you wanted to go and protest, Doing it in Tahrir during the revolution was a really good idea because if you did it several streets down the way, you were much more likely to get in trouble, get caught up, maybe even be attacked. Um, and so these various conditions of converge convergence, as I call them, combine into um, a very kind of, I was going to say very propitious, but perhaps a better word is a very conducive context for, for mobilization. Uh, one in which people, for example, they see a space, they recognise the status quo, and they recognise a kind of general feeling that cultivates their pre-existing predispositions to participate. But that begs another question. OK, right, these conditions exist, right? You have these opportune conditions that make things easier to do. You, you feel there are, uh, there are fewer dangers that you're going to face. You have these exceptional conditions that kind of break the existing norms and make things feel more possible, feel like you're being less deviant, for example, by protesting. And you have these paramount conditions that make it feel almost more important or critical that you, you participate. But that doesn't really matter unless you have something else, that affinity that I was talking about at the beginning of this talk. And to understand that, we're going to move to talk about another case in the book which is the Occupy Wall Street movement. Now, the Occupy Wall Street movement is very different from the Egyptian Revolution in, in several respects. Um, one of them is that the time frame is, is, is much longer. What you saw in Egypt was more or less an 18-day period of very intense mobilization. And even within that period, there are a few days that really weren't as intense as you would expect. So quite a temporally compressed period of mass mobilization. In Occupy, you see this long trajectory of building participation over time with this occupied space that initially just uh, in Zuccotti Park in downtown New York, but later with several spaces across the country that drew membership over this much more leisurely, um, much more leisurely trajectory. And what this was really useful for, for me when I was doing this research, was trying to understand the factors that motivated people to actually get involved. Because for all of the kind of situational and framing factors that encouraged participation in the movement. One of the things that people were really attracted to in the case of Occupy was the space itself. It had a lot of features that appealed to people's patterns of everyday life. And so what I'm going to do for this section is I'm going to talk a little bit about what that was and why it had those attributes. So Zuccotti Park is a very nondescript park in downtown New York. And when I say nondescript, it really is boring. If I had uh, put more slides up here, I would give you a picture of the park empty, but this is what it looked like filled to the brim. You can kind of imagine if you take away the people, um, there's basically concrete, a few benches, trees, some food trucks. It's in between a whole bunch of office blocks and shops. Uh, it's next to the metro station. But as a park, it sucks. It's a terrible park. Um, 
It wasn't even the original prioritised target. The, the first target was obviously Wall Street, right? That's why the movement was called Occupy Wall Street. A second was a nearby uh, park called Chase Plaza that was basically outside the headquarters of Chase Bank. Um, Zuccotti Park was the third preference target where protesters ended up after this tremendous snake march through the city of New York on September 17, 2011, during which they declared they were going to enact America's Tahrir moment, kind of evoking the ideas of the Egyptian revolution. Of course, in reality, there wasn't much of a Tahrir moment at this initial point. Instead, what happened is a few people decided that they would camp out in the park. Um, I say a few people, quite a sizable number of people, really, but nothing on, on the Egyptian crowds. Um, so people set up, their, um, set up their sleeping bags, slept on the park and declared that they were occupying Wall Street. But then something funny happened. More people came. People thought, oh, I, I want to check out this, uh, this occupation. It's, it's near the downtown metro station anyway. It's just, you know, it's just a park. Why, why don't I walk in? People didn't seem particularly militant in their protests. It was a very accepting atmosphere. And so people started coming. They brought pizzas for people who were staying in the park. Say, hey, you know, here's some food. And then some people came and they brought medical supplies. Uh, more people came and they said, you know what, actually what you really need is a sanitation setup. So I'm going to volunteer here and I'm going to help clean this thing because otherwise it's going to get filthy. And before you know it, you had all sorts of people coming into this park and getting involved. Some of them, yes, with resources they wanted to bring, but others in some circumstances just because they wanted to check it out. I talked to one young woman who um, came to Occupy Wall Street, not because she was particularly politically active, but because she heard there might be some really cool music going on there. Um, she was uh, actually in the, in the music industry at the time, so she said, hey, you know, this would be really good for my career to show up at this park. Maybe I'll capture one of these magical moments and this will make my, make my kind of professional trajectory happen. Um, it didn't, but that was what attracted her to this space. And the more I talked to people who participated, the more these stories came to mind. I talked to someone else who actually said that she got involved because she was really interested in making puppets and they were running a puppet-making workshop at this occupation. Um, I talked to one other person who recalled how a very old lady got involved because she wanted to get rid of some avocados and came down to the park to offer them away. And before you knew it, she was providing a kind of second home to movement activists doing their laundry, coming down to the park, and eventually providing them with film canisters filled with perfectly rolled joints to uh, incentivize their participation further. Um, and so these kind of peculiar stories of individual participation that seemed kind of very sweet and funny in certain ways. Initially, I thought that this was going to be an exceptional case. This was going to be some amusing stories that danced around the periphery of a story that was much more about people showing up because they really cared about this well-defined political cause. But the more I talked to the people who'd gotten involved and the more archival documents I consulted, the more I realised that for the early months, Occupy Wall Street didn't really know what it was about. And its politics, well, it attracted everyone from the kind of Ayn Rand libertarians who wanted to completely end the Federal Reserve and establish a very different system of uh, economic and, and social life to hardcore communists and anarchists uh, who were very involved in, for example, running these grand participatory assemblies where people could kind of show up and make their voices heard. Um, so actually, the political element wasn't necessarily the biggest draw for a lot of people. Instead, it was the movement's accordance with other features of their everyday lives, their patterns of activity, the resources or obligations that they had, their social status, kind of the, the, the patterns of their lives, their employment. 
Um, and yes, of course, you know, to a certain extent, there were the general psychological factors that predisposed people to join the movement too. People generally did think there was something wrong. They thought that Occupy Wall Street was onto something good. Wall Street maybe needed to be occupied, or at least somewhere near Wall Street. But they weren't the kind of politicized radicals that you saw depicted in the media. Those people existed. They often slept overnight in the park. They were very visible. But when we think about Occupy Wall Street as this longitudinal action, right, of these months of protest, the vast majority of people who participate are from this periphery. They were ordinary people who intersected with the movement, became involved, sometimes briefly, sometimes for long periods of time, and swelled these crowds in downtown New York and later across the country, giving force to the movement's message that, as it later kind of transpired, um, that the 99% of Americans were aligned against the 1%. Uh, of the American elite, however that was defined, and there were certainly debates over that definition. And so thinking about what happened in the Occupy Wall Street movement and thinking about what happened in Egypt led me to further develop this concept of what affinity actually meant, right? What is an affinity to a cause? And so I built this larger set of um, different factors that you see here. And so basically what we see is there are three different components. Um, your drives, your dispositions, and your social affinities. And drives and dispositions belong to a larger category that we could call psychological affinities. We'll start, though, with, with the social ones, because those are the ones I just talked about. These are your patterns of activity, your social status, your resources, and your obligations. These are the kind of facets of your social life that determine what you get up to quite often. Do you need to pick the kids up from school? Are you a student? Do you work in downtown New York? Do you have lots of money? Do you need to go and grab something to eat? These kind of factors. And you might think, hold on, how can this possibly determine whether someone joins a protest? And what I'd say to you is consider what you've done so far today. Consider every action you've taken today. And tell me, to what extent were those actions calculated on the basis of your sincere beliefs and values? And to what extent were they primarily conditioned by your social status, what you had to do, the resources you had to do it with, and, of course, the patterns of activity that you're already engaged in. So, yeah, I'm going to this lecture, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. These things have a really outsized impact. But they don't have that impact alone. They are also uh, paired alongside these psychological factors. On the one hand, we have this kind of triad of dispositions that came up again and again across all the movements that I studied for the book. Um, these I kind of term dispositional affinities. These are your social identity, your perception of injustice, and your political attitudes. Um, to give those each a brief explanation, your social identity is how you conceive of yourself in the social world. It can be things, for example, such as your race or gender identity, but it could also be certain political identities you have. So, for example, you might have a, an identity, and we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later, you might have an identity as an anti-racist. Um, that's still an identity that you would identify with. Um, by contrast, when we, when we look at something like your political attitudes, those are generally beliefs that you hold that concord with a given movement or a given political cause. So, for example, you might believe that everyone has a right to free healthcare. You might believe that we have to transition to uh, net zero now. You might believe that precaritization at the university is unacceptable. These are kind of positive beliefs that you hold about the world that often will accord with a political cause. But then there's also this broader category, the sense of a perception of injustice. And this is something that can exist independent from 
your attitudes. You may well have friends who will say, for example, well, you know, of course things should be different, but, you know, I, I don't really, I don't need to protest about it. Or, oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll still vote for this political party, even though they don't mirror my views. Those are situations where they have political attitudes, but they don't necessarily have a perception of injustice. A perception of injustice is this broader sense that um, things are not as good as they should be and that that's not fair. Um, and these three factors combined often help explain why people choose to join these movements, when they make the conscious decision to go and seek out an opportunity to encounter it. Um, of course, as we've just discussed, sometimes you don't seek out that opportunity. Sometimes you see it before you and it's a split-second decision. In the case of Occupy Wall Street, we often saw people who showed up primarily because they wanted a snack from the kitchen in the occupation. They said, oh, hey, you know, this is great, free pizza, fantastic. But once you get there, oh, suddenly you become involved in the conversation. You meet someone, you, you chat, you spend a little bit of time. Little do you know, you've suddenly spent an hour and a half of the protest during your lunch break. Um, so you see these two factors working together. Um, they they complement each other. But there's also this other element among what I call um, psychological affinities. These are your drives. And your drives are a little bit different. These are your kind of interests or, or deep-seated needs. Um, this literature, actually, the kind of the literature around drives, um, is quite strongly connected to explanations of why people join cults. Um, that's not to say that social movements or protests are at all cult-like, but rather the literature on cults has a lot of kind of interesting things to say about why your interests and needs shape uh, what's kind of called the, the chance encounters that you have during your life. Um, so basically, your interests connect to things that you're passionate about, things that you would like to do or explore. We talked about the person who was interested in making puppets, for example, right? That was an interest that she had uh, that caused her to come into contact with the movement. By contrast, your needs are often about feeling empowered or efficacious or bold or seeking thrills. And these also can be really potent motivators for participation in protest. Um, you often see the phenomenon outside the process of people running towards danger, right? You think, why would someone run towards danger? Well, it's exciting, isn't it? You know, you're getting a need met there. Um, We'll talk about another interesting example of, of protest meeting needs that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be key motivators later on. But the key point here is that this is a complex web of factors that lead to an individual having an affinity. And for each individual, it's different. Um, that, of course, makes it quite hard to study, particularly when we look at it at the larger scale, which is what I do with the theory, affinity convergence theory. It's called affinity convergence theory because you have affinity and then you have convergence and that's the theory. So basically affinity refers to the predispositions, right? This is what makes someone decide, okay, maybe I'm gonna participate or just lead someone to participate regardless of their conscious decision-making. But that's fine, okay, right. You might have an affinity to go and join Occupy Wall Street or to go and protest in the Egyptian revolution. But you also will have an affinity to having lunch or going to the cinema or doing whatever, right? Affinity alone doesn't explain this spontaneous mass participation. Because by and large, people will probably do other things they have an affinity to, not just protests. And this is where convergence comes in. These conditions of convergence shape the kind of shared framework that everyone has in society in favour of protest. Suddenly, protest becomes way more opportune. It becomes way more kind of paramount or important to people, or the circumstances become so exceptional that people who felt they couldn't protest suddenly feel they can. And it's the combination of these pre-existing predispositions among a large number of people in society, not as large as you would think, mind you, right? You only need to turn out tens of thousands of people, and societies are very big nowadays, um, with then these conditions that cultivate their participation, these conditions of convergence. 
And that's how we get the mass mobilizations. But the question then was, does this theory actually work, right? OK, it worked for these two cases. It seems to make sense. Let's try something harder. Let's try the French Revolution, 1789. This is a, um, a revolutionary case that is routinely returned to as like a classic puzzle in the study of protest, revolutions, contention. The reason it's a classic puzzle is because for all of the documents that you have that say, right, you know, this club were organizing this protest here, these agents of this minor royal family member were paying people to go and show up here, all these kind of small details. You still have, again and again, accounts from people saying, I don't know where these people are coming from. Why are these people out in the street? Why are, you know, why are all these women at this palace with cannons? How did this happen? Um, and so it was a rather good case to test the theory out on. Unfortunately, at this point, because I kind of had the broad strokes of this theory in place, I was able to go and check the archives. I was able to go and read the arrest records. I was able to see, OK, why does this person say they did this? And to my delight, it fit really well. Um, it, there's this great anecdote in the book, actually, about this one woman who is, she's, she's at the market. She's doing her shopping. She hears some other women coming from coming from the market and saying, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to go protest. And she said, I don't really want to go protest. I'm, I'm, I'm not so into this. I just, want to, I just want to go home. And the women drag her by the hand and say, look, you're coming with us. We're going to do this. Um, and she ends up getting dragooned into this march to Versailles. Um, and she gets kind of carried away with it all. And she's asked in this interview, OK, so, you know, were they forcing you to do this? And she uses this language to say, well, you know, I wasn't forced per se. I felt forced, but I wasn't really forced. Um, and then the interview ends by, by her being asked, okay, so, so what happened in the end? She said, well, you know, we ended up in a bar um, and I promised that I would drink the entire bottle of wine and they would let me go home. Um, and you think, oh, wait, this is how this happens, right? It's not that these people become these concerted political agents. It's that they're doing something, they see an opportunity to protest, the circumstances are right, they join in, drawing on their conditions of everyday life and the social circumstances that cultivate or catalyze participation, these kind of conditions of convergence, they just decide to do it. It's as simple as that. People make choices to protest on the basis of their social circumstances and their pre-existing predispositions. And you see this quite regularly in the case of the French Revolution, particularly really early on. You see these very ordinary people crossing a bridge, seeing a crowd, stopping to see what's going on, getting caught up in it, thinking, yeah, you know what, maybe this is a good idea, joining the crowd, and before you know it, they're you know, raiding some building or they're going to a newspaper proprietor's house to put him on the back of a donkey and threaten to tar and feather him if he doesn't change the headline or all sorts of kind of tiny, minor iterations. And this happens across the country. This kind of spills out across the country. Um, and so the French Revolution left me kind of emboldened as a case. And... I was ready to wrap the book up at this point. I thought, OK, right, you know, I've, I've got three cases. They're very different. That's great. And then something happened. And that something was that the people of Minneapolis burned down their police station, or, or rather set fire to their police station. Uh, and the reason they did it is because a man called George Floyd had been brutally murdered by the police department in 2020. And I kind of stopped everything I was doing. And I said, right, OK. I have to see what's going on here. I have to see if this theory actually works to explain something that's happening right now. And I was very lucky that I had already, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'd already had clearance to go and do research on this topic. I was already doing a separate project on resistance to populism in the United States. And so I pivoted to this and I started talking to people. And I said, OK, right, 
were you at this protest? Do you know someone who was at this protest? I reached out to people on Facebook, I reached out to people on Twitter, I asked them to put me in touch with their friends. And I kind of built this portfolio of contacts across the US in various different cities um, to understand what happened in the uprising. Before I go any further, um, how many of you are familiar with what happened in the US in 2020? Yeah? Okay, good. So I don't need to give you the full background, but I'll give you a kind of quick history. So basically, after George Floyd is killed, there are very peaceful protests initially in, in, in the Twin Cities. Um, and these peaceful protests meet quite harsh police resistance. Not terribly harsh, not as harsh as some of the repression of, of past protests, but pretty nasty. They get the tear gas out, um, they get the pepper balls out. And after day one, people are pretty pissed off. So they come back for day two. They say, you know what, right, we're out to protest again. And the police step it up again. You might be sensing a pattern here, by the way, that you saw in Egypt as well. <laughs> um, and the police keep stepping it up until one day protests say, okay, you know what, we're just gonna show up at the police station. We're gonna cut the, we're not gonna bother doing these marches. We're not gonna go to these community organized events. We're just going to go to the police station and protest the police now, because this is us versus the police. Um, and in the context of this also, the city was making already these kind of preemptive um, concessions. So they were saying, oh, we're going to investigate this. Oh, we're going to prosecute this guy. And so the only target that was left was the Minneapolis Police Department itself. And so people show up to the police station. They start protesting. The police respond with essentially a kind of... Um, the, the term they use in, in American policing is less lethal. It's called less lethal because it's not non-lethal. Um, so there's this kind of less lethal hit squad, basically, posted on the roof of the police station. And they start shooting at people and seriously injuring and wounding them. Um, I don't have the full inventory of injuries, but yeah, we're talking, the, during this period, people get maimed, people get, uh, they lose their sight, they lose the uh, use of certain kind of bodily limbs. Uh, I talked to one person, for example, who was, who was on medical duty during this time, and he said the stuff that he saw was, was really horrifying. And so people have enough. They, over, they overcome the police. They force an evacuation of the police station. The police station gets burned down. And then other parts of the city get burned down too. There's this big riot, basically, that takes over Minneapolis. And just as people were hand-wringing about this in the media, saying, you know, isn't this terrible? These protesters in Minneapolis have used violence. Other people across the US say, hey, they beat the police. They did it. They, kicked the police out their own police station, they burned it down. We can do that too. And there's a, a quote I really like in the book of uh, a, someone who grew up in, in Minneapolis, um, moved out of the state. She was a grandmother with, with kids, and she said, to see my hometown in flames, I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember the exact quote, but to see my hometown in flames, to see the rage and anger on the street, um, it made me think, yes, finally, people are getting one back. Um, and I talked to tons of people across the United States, and they all cited this kind of critical moment where the people of Minneapolis burned down their police station as the moment that made them think, hey, we can take on the police too. It doesn't matter if they're going to repress us. There are more of us than there are of them, and we can force their retreats. And so you see these series of protests that follow this kind of Minneapolitan pattern where peaceful protesters show up initially, the police try and repress them, the protesters get very pissed off, and then they push the police off the street, and in some cases, also attack the police station or claim some space in the city. So for example, in Seattle, the area on Capitol Hill around the precinct gets claimed. They interestingly intentionally don't burn down the precinct to kind of show that they can maintain the space and that it's legitimate. Uh, in Portland, there's this thing that erupts, it's later called the Fed War, which I'll talk about in a little bit. 
Um, and so these big protests kind of ha happened across the United States with, with quite clearly violent conflicts between police and protesters. The violence usually is initiated by the police and the protesters respond in, in, in kind once the police show that they're not willing to tolerate peaceful protest. And so this continues for a while until eventually President Trump gets involved. He decides that he's going to kick uh, the radical Antifa, as he's calling them at this time. Um, this is a group he'd been campaigning against for, for a long time. Um, it's kind of not really a group. It's just a thing that people do. It's, it's I mean, it's, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like saying you're, I don't know, a, a Trotskyist communist rather than saying that you're uh, a member of the Democratic Party, for example. It's more like a persuasion. But basically, they, they, um, there is this notion that Trump says, he says, I'm going to kick Antifa off the street. I'm going to kick these Black Lives Matter protesters off the street. I'm going to send in federal forces to cities like Portland and Seattle. And I am going to ensure that I restore order. Would you imagine that this doesn't make things better, for Trump at least? Um, all that happens is now the large number of racial justice protesters and anti-police brutality protesters who are on the street are joined by a third contingent, anti-Trump protesters, who are very upset that the president has decided to send in his own private goons to disrupt these protests, particularly in certain contexts where city mayors were saying, please don't send in your you know, department of, uh, I think one of them was the Bureau of Prisons, for example, the other was, I think, Department of Homeland Security. You know, the, these, these federal agencies, basically, please don't send these people in. We are trying as hard as we can to, to get a lid in this scenario. Um, and all of a sudden, Trump comes in the sense of these people and, of course, gets condemned by the very local mayors who were combating the protests, uh, lending him even less legitimacy in his actions than you thought, which understandably people then say, oh, great, now I can go out and legitimately join these protests because Trump is uh, impinging on our democracy. Um, you see this renewed surge of protest afterwards. And eventually, things as they do, die down. I don't have enough time to cover the demobilization phase of this. Um, but what I'm going to talk about now to kind of round things off is to explain how this particular case shows the whole theory in notion. So, the Black Lives Uprising. And this is affinity convergence theory in action. Let's begin with the affinities. So the first question was, who was it who became involved in the protests? Well, people by and large had a level of proximity to them. They often lived nearby. This might seem obvious. Um, it's not always the case. Sometimes people drive a very long way to join protests. But I think in this particular context, it was important. Likewise, they often used a form of media that exposed them to the protest early. You have to remember that at this point in time, we were in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic. People weren't generally looking for news on protests. What they were getting was reporting in the news, maybe their local news. But if you live, for example, in rural Colorado, you wouldn't necessarily be, uh, have your finger on the pulse of what was happening in downtown Minneapolis. Um, so this was one kind of predisposing factor. But another that I thought was really interesting, given the context we were in, was social status. Participants in the protest were likely to be young, and they were likely to be precariously employed or unemployed. The reason for that was because during COVID, as some of you may remember, uh, people's educations were disrupted, people's jobs were disrupted. And so those who were precariously employed or later unemployed were sacked or told not to come into work. Um, those who had more regular jobs were able to work from home. Uh, this wasn't the case if you're a young person, for example, in college or you're a young person who was working in a grocery store. Um, you would have your hours cut back. You might not have any hours, you might have them totally cut, particularly if you're working in somewhere like a coffee shop that wasn't allowed to open. 
And so you had a great deal of free time all of a sudden. Uh, you had a huge amount of free time. And there were these protests going on. And it made a lot of sense to join them. So that was one aspect of it. On the other hand is people had certain obligations that actually prevented them from, uh, from joining. And this is one of these examples where actually the absence of obligations um, is important, but obligations themselves don't seem to have helped participation in the protest. So things like, for example, needing to shield. If you're an older person, you weren't going to go and participate. And I talked to a lot of people who said, I'd love to have been there on the street, but I was very worried about COVID. Um, so these kind of factors, again, were, were stopping people from protesting. Meanwhile, there was this psychological component that I talked about earlier, right? So we have up here, I would point with the pointer, but I'm afraid it doesn't have battery. Um, we have up here this kind of set of uh, drives that are really important, and in particular needs. Interests, partly because of what was going on at the time, didn't play really a major role here. There wasn't as much puppet making happening while people were burning down police stations. Um, but needs, yeah. It's the middle of COVID. You are desperately bored. There is a protest going on. A surprising number of people, particularly people actually who often had radical politics, said, well, you know, part of it was I was stuck at home. I was told I couldn't go out. I couldn't do things. Suddenly, there was this thing that I cared about, yes, but also an opportunity to see other people and be with other people in an atmosphere that I cared about. And again and again and again, this theme of social stimulation and later, once the police stations were being uh, burned down or attacked or other arsons were happening, also this sense of catharsis, this wanting to kind of strike out against the system that were really powerful motivators for some people. On the other hand, you then have the political factors. These were obviously quite important in something which was an uprising against racist police brutality. Um, if you're an anti-racist or an anti-fascist, this was very important. This actually, among the set of people I talked to, was more important than, for example, your racial identity. And this is mirrored in, if you look at statistics on who participated, you see a very large number of people who were not black participating in the protest at Solidarity, saying, you know, I, well, I thought it was important that I was out there so that I could show that I did believe that black lives mattered rather than just you know, saying it on social media or whatever. We've talked a little bit about perceived injustice. I'm not going to go into the details of that because I think it's kind of self-evident from what's up here. Um, but what I am going to do now is talk about how these things were catalyzed by the conditions uh, of convergence that were present in the case. So one of the things we saw again and again and again was when police got kicked off the street, it created this opportune situation. Right? The protesters defeated the police department, they retreated from their precincts, or they were pushed back successfully, uh, even though they were using violence. And people thought, OK, great, it's actually safe to come out here, it's safe to protest, I can do this. Um, at the level of cognitive framing, what we then saw was also when city officials would make concessions to the protesters in advance, they would think once again, often incorrectly, that it was safe to go out and protest. And often the pattern was actually reversed here. So you'd have city officials say, well, you know, we take the Black Lives Matter movement very seriously. We really do care about police brutality. People would say, great, I'm going to go and join the protests. The police would then try and repress those protests, showing that it actually wasn't that safe to go out and protest. But then protesters would push back and show that they could stand up to the police, making a whole new group of people say, OK, right, maybe it is safe to protest. I can come out. Um, in cities like Seattle, for example, this also expanded into special claimed spaces like the uh, Capitol Hill Occupied Precinct or Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, as it was known, that was claimed in the center of the city. This was an area where that was essentially a police-free zone uh, that, again, people thought it was obviously particularly opportune to come and protest where you were less likely to be repressed. Um, but one of the major conditions, as I've alluded to, was this exceptional situation created by the COVID-19 pandemic, where suddenly a lot of people, particularly young people, had a lot more free time and importantly, where the streets were people's for the taking. It wasn't the case, for example, that you would have loads of people trying to get about their day in these main downtown streets. Instead, 
these cities were more or less deserted. So if you were leading a protest through the street, you were the one thing that was going on. Um, again, in terms of uh, paramount conditions, I'll skip the uh, specific reference to exceptional spaces um, for time. But when they come to paramount conditions, there's another this interesting situation in which these showdown moments, these moments where the police are attacking people, prompt people to come out into the streets that you see again and again and again throughout the uprising. There's one really good example of a, a guy who's on his way back uh, from, from work. He was one of the actually few in-person workers um, who joined the protests in, in Atlanta. Um, He's driving home from work, and he hears on the radio that police are attacking a Black Lives Matter protest downtown. And he turns his car around on the freeway and speeds all the way back. He says, you know what, I have to be there. I have to be there to defend this movement that I care about. Um, and so he shows up, parks his car across the road. It was also handy in this particular context that the downtown Atlanta protests were very near a car park that had a lot of capacity. Um, that's a kind of micro wrinkle in how these cases work um, that also speaks to this theory. But I didn't, I didn't put car parks up on the, uh, up on the diagram. Um, and he says, all right, I'm going to go and go and join him. And similarly, what we saw is when Trump decided to get involved, it created this framing. Once again, there was a serious authoritarian threat that went beyond the bounds of the Black Lives Matter movement, that Trump's move against Black Lives Matter, or Antifa, as he was calling them, was actually the beginning of a, a long-running coup attempt, that these federal forces were kind of a dry run for what he might do in the election. Um, turned out they weren't a dry run for what he might do in the election. He was far more haphazard than that in his efforts to try and cling on to power. But people understandably thought, hey, you know, we, we have to stand up to these federal forces and show that this is unacceptable so that he can't do this when election time comes. And so what we see in these protests really is that it's a, it's a messy phenomenon. And if you try and reduce it down to the individual, you get these very coherent stories. But when you try and create general laws, you struggle. You have to use this abstract level. You have to talk you know, of dispositional affinities, of social affinities, of you know, opportune conditions, because every case is different. But what I think is the kind of elegance of, of this model is that you can pick your level of detail, and you only have to think in aggregate. You don't have to go around and survey everyone and say, oh, OK, right, you know, do you personally care about police brutality? Or say, oh, do you personally live near this protest? Um, you can look at the kind of population level statistics and you can get a rough impression of what's going to happen. But you're not likely to be able to predict a protest using this. Um, and that's something I was very intentional about when I, was, uh, when I was writing the book. I didn't want to build a model that could be used to fully predict spontaneous protests. If such a model could be produced, I mean, who exactly would it serve, right? I wanted a model that helped explain protests, helped us understand them better and help us get to the humanity at their core rather than thinking about these mass protests as things organized by tight-knit conspiratorial groups, by um, elites somehow mo you know, motivating people from behind closed doors, or as disordered, irrational outbursts of crowds, which was one of the things that you often saw in the academic literature, this notion that these protests were simply people giving in to their base psychological instincts. I want to show that these were real people engaging with real conditions and responding accordingly making very sensible decisions based on their social circumstances, their state of mind, and the conditions of their everyday lives. And so that's what I tried to do with the book. And I hope this brief preview has enlightened you as to how I did it. Thank you. That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. 
Thank you for listening.